I'm David Byrd, VOA News. This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, after 12 years at the helm of the Israeli government, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is out and a new so-called change coalition is in. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. Barring unforeseen obstacles, Israel's new so-called change coalition is set to be approved by the Knesset, Israel's parliament, on Sunday, June 13. With little in common besides a desire to oust Benjamin Netanyahu, also known as Bibi, can the eight-party coalition government, a hodgepodge of parties from the far right, left, and center, and an Arab party for the first time since the 1950s, survive? Formed on the heels of the 11-day war between Israel and the Hamas-controlled Gaza Strip that ended in a ceasefire in late May, can the far-right politician Naftali Bennett, the centrist secularist Yair Lapid, and the head of a conservative Islamist party, Mansour Abbas, govern? How can these parties with differing agendas, conflicting ideologies, and opposing positions on critical questions like settlements, the status of Jerusalem, and the merits of a two-state solution unite? Naftali Bennett, a staunch supporter of Israeli settlements and an opponent of the creation of a Palestinian state, begins his two-year rotating stint as prime minister, followed by centrist Yair Lapid. On what issues can the new coalition reach common ground and act? Meantime, the New York Times reports that Mr. Netanyahu, facing a loss of power after 12 years, is fiercely resisting this outcome. What does the change government tell us about the direction of the Jewish state and chances for Palestinian statehood? What about the need to repair Arab-Israeli and Jewish-Israeli communities, which were torn apart during the recent Hamas-Israel conflict? And how will the United States, under the Biden administration, deal with Israel? We're joining us to discuss the implications of Israel's new government are two regional experts. Lucy Kurtzer-Ellenbogen is the director of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict Program at the U.S. Institute of Peace. That's a U.S. federal institution tasked with promoting conflict resolution and prevention worldwide. And Natan Sachs, he is a fellow in and the director of the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution, a prominent policy group based in Washington. And his work focuses on Israeli foreign policy, domestic politics, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and U.S.-Israeli relations. Both panelists join me via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to the program. Natan, let me begin with you. I'd like to get your take on this so-called unity coalition. They seem to be unified in opposition to Bibi, but, but not much else. Do you think this coalition of strange bedfellows from the far right to left with an Islamist party in for good measure can find common ground and avoid yet another election? Thank you very much for having me. And it's really a pleasure to be alongside my friend Lucy. It's a great question. On the one hand, this government, if it's sworn in on Sunday, will have achieved its main goal of the minute it's sworn in, which is to remove Benjamin Netanyahu from the prime minister's office. And in that sense, some of the glue that holds them together might disappear as soon as they're there. But of course, Netanyahu may not disappear completely. He'll still be around. And in that sense, they'll still have a mission, which is to keep him out of office. It's not just a mission of keeping him out of office, however. The last two years have seen really unprecedented political crisis in Israel. And the main mandate, the main task of this new coalition would be to simply return to some kind of governing normalcy. 
That would include passing a budget, the first time since 2019, which is astounding for a country not to have a budget for two years, appointing people to a variety of different positions that were never appointed, and simply to have some kind of predictability and governability that Israel hasn't seen in two years. And that's quite a bit. It is mostly domestic, of course. From abroad, it can seem to be less of a mandate, less of an agenda, because most of it is indeed domestic. But they will have a lot to do. Will they succeed in holding together or not? Of course, I don't know, and you should never preclude any possibility in Israeli politics. I would not guess that they will last four years. I'm not even sure about two years, but I do think they have a good chance of holding together for a while, in particular because several of the main actors, including the person who would be the first prime minister, Naftali Bennett, are putting a lot of political stake on this. He will have lost a lot of his political base. He will have gone back on some promises he made during the campaign to form this coalition. And in that sense, the best way for them is forward, to try to succeed in government. Turning to you, Lucy Kurtzer, Ellen Bogan, for your take on this new coalition government. As Nathan says, it's not just against Bibi Netanyahu to get him out of power, but a return to some semblance of governing normalcy. How do you see it? Thank you, Carolyn. Echoing Natan, it's a pleasure to be here and alongside him. Look, I think Natan has put it unsurprisingly aptly. The coalition was not called the Change Coalition for no reason. It underscores the shared goal that Natan has mentioned. And this is not the first instance in this arena where we've seen the powerful pull of shared interest in being able to overcome certain taboos. So here again, you have seen these, as you call them, strange bedfellows coming together, finding common cause to move towards a post-Netanyahu era in Israeli politics for the first time in the past 12 years. But I think one of the things that Tam points out, which is important here, and it may be important, as he says, for holding the coalition together as long as it can last, Many analysts, I think, have not been able to resist drawing comparisons to the American arena in the way that we see Netanyahu putting up a fight, not willing to go down quietly. But the thing to remember here is that Netanyahu doesn't disappear from politics in this arena. He stays in the Knesset, in the opposition, so he remains a political presence and a powerful force there. So as, again, I think Netan pointed out, this could be a factor in keeping this set of strange bedfellows together in this common cause. But it'll certainly, if the goal is to return to some sense of normalcy or, or a calmer political scene in Israel, I think that remains to be seen. Well, back to you, Nathan Sachs. And before we get into Bibi Netanyahu, which uh, we will be talking about, I wanted you to give us a sense of who is Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid, the two rotating prime ministers, and whether or not there will be any kind of role for the head of Ram, the uh, Islamist party, Mansour Abbas. Yes, this is a very flat coalition, and it'll take some getting used to. Netanyahu was prime minister, but really in many respects, He thought of himself and everyone else thought of him a bit as a president. He was the person giving instructions right and left. He almost gave an instruction to the Minister of Defense not to evacuate one settlement outpost in the West Bank. The Minister of Defense then informed him that he does not need the Prime Minister's approval to do so. Because the Prime Minister, by law, is simply first among equal. He is the Prime Minister, the First Minister. And the Minister of Defense and other ministers have statutory authority. That's important to keep in mind when we think of Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid and everyone else. There will be a role to play for every member of this cabinet because, by law, they will each have one vote. That is true of the prime minister and every other member of the cabinet. Of course, the prime minister sets the agenda, which means he can control an enormous amount of policy. He also has statutory authority himself of a variety of different things. 
But it is worth keeping that in mind. So Naftali Bennett and if Yair Lapid becomes prime minister, they will be much weaker prime ministers, less prominent than Netanyahu is certainly now after 12 consecutive years in office. Naftali Bennett himself is upper middle class Israeli. He lives in central Israel in a place called Ra'anana, where English is sometimes a second language and sometimes a first language. He's the son of American immigrants from Northern California who then became Orthodox Jews later. And he grew up modern Orthodox, very hawkish in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I think that's worth dwelling upon for a moment. He will try to moderate. He will certainly try to appear much more pragmatic. And he is pragmatic in one sense. He is a very successful tech entrepreneur, very wealthy from that. A man who sees himself as a can-do doer and one who wants to appear that way. He has not been himself personally antagonistic to the Israeli minority, to the Palestinian citizens of Israel. He himself has always avoided that kind of rhetoric, and he makes a point of stating that, saying, I could have made political gain from this, and I never did because it's not who I am. However, he is not, and despite any appearances of pragmatism, he is not a moderate on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He has a very hawkish position and is seen to a large degree as an all-Israeli among the Jewish population, someone who can bridge the gap between the secular Jewish population in Israel and the modern Orthodox one. And this coalition, in no small part, is an alliance, in a sense, between these two very broad and disparate communities, seculars and modern Orthodox. And that excludes two other important groups, at least. One is Palestinian citizens of Israel or Arab Israelis, and the second is Haredi or ultra-Orthodox, as they're sometimes called. This will be a very secular coalition, even though its first prime minister will be the very first religious prime minister in Israel's history. Yair Lapid is very different from Naftali Bennett in some ways. He is staunchly secularist. He is the son of a firebrand secularist minister, journalist, politician. And indeed, that's Yair Lapid's story as well. He was a journalist and a TV presenter, a very successful one. And then he entered into politics and has been in politics now for a while. He surprised people in the last two years with a very responsible and very egoless behavior. He gave the first seat in the Blue and White Coalition to someone else, Benny Gantz, now the Minister of Defense, and has now given Naftali Bennett the prime ministership, thus succeeding in getting Bennett away from the right wing into this change coalition and managing to form really a very unlikely coalition. In terms of policy, as I said, he's very secularist. He's also likes to portray himself as a can-do individual, but he is also very much a man of words and will be embracing the role of foreign minister, not just by default, but really by will. He's been trying to be foreign minister, of course, prime minister as well, but foreign minister for a long time. He'll embrace that. Uh, his English is good, as is Naftali Bennett, the son of Americans, as I said. They get along, so there is a modicum of personal trust between them. The rest of the coalition, as I said, will also have a role. That's true of Mansour Abbas, who leads the Ram Party. It's true, certainly, of Benny Gantz, the Minister of Defense, a very important role. It's true of the Finance Minister, Avigdor Lieberman, assuming they take office. Avigdor Sal will be Minister of Justice. And also of Miram Mikhaeli, the quite prominent and successful now leader of the Labour Party, as well as Nitzan Horowitz, leader of the more far-left Meretz Party. Each one of them will have veto, in the sense that they can bring down the coalition. Each one of them will be important. But of course, it starts first with Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid. Over to you, Lucy Kurtzer, Ellen Bogan, for anything to add or subtract to that very interesting portrait of the rotating prime ministers that Nathan Sachs gave us. What about the significance of the Arab party's entry into this coalition? Do you think that there will be a more equity for the Palestinians living inside Israel? How do you see that aspect as well? 
Yeah, well, I mean, Natan gave an incredibly comprehensive overview of the coalition, the dynamics at play of the different parties. The entry of Ram into the coalition is highly significant. Certainly since 1977, you have not had this kind of significant role of an Arab party inside the coalition, as Mansour Abbas's party here was often referred to as kingmaker in this context. And that really is an unprecedented phenomenon in the past few decades. One thing to keep in mind is an interesting dynamic at play here is this arrangement was achieved essentially after the Ram Party took itself out of the coalition of other Arab parties, was peeled off in some sense by Netanyahu. One of maybe the ironies here is that Netanyahu was somewhat the author of his own downfall in legitimizing the notion of an Arab party entering the coalition. It was Netanyahu who first courted Mansour Abbas and the Ram Party, which in a country where does just not seem to be a sought-after proposition to have an Arab party in the coalition, all of a sudden Netanyahu put his stamp on the approval of that being a possibility. And ultimately, this is how we ended up with Ram entering into this new coalition. But the Ram party is a conservative Islamic party. So when Natan was pointing out the dynamics at play here, where you had Naftali Bennett, himself a religious figure at the head of the coalition, and a coalition of secularists, Mansour Abbas is not secular himself. And so this is where, when you'll begin to see over time, the differences emerge in some of these chasms that these parties have to overcome. But in terms in terms of what this means for Jewish-Arab relations inside Israel, this will be an interesting dynamic to look at. What you saw here is a very transactional approach. Uh, you saw Ram enter the coalition with agreements seemingly made in terms of bringing benefits to the Arab community's economic benefits, focus on rising crime and organized crime in Arab communities, which has been a significant concern among the Arab communities for the last number of years. Things like recognition of the so-called non-recognized Arab villages in Israel. So this was a transactional approach, which traditionally you've actually seen in the past between other, some of the Jewish religious parties, where putting aside maybe other larger issues or ideological issues to enter into coalition with those from whom you can extract the most tangible benefits, day-to-day -day bread and butter issues for your community. So that's really, I think, what we've seen Mansour Abbas trying to do here. And I think it'll be a real test over the next few years to see how the Arab community responds to this. You're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. Our guests are Lucy Kurtzer, Ellen Bogan, director of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict Program at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and Nathan Sachs, director of the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. We are discussing the ramifications of Israel's post-Benjamin Netanyahu coalition government, what are the implications for the future of Israel, tensions with Palestinians, and relations with Washington. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA and check out our new page, facebook.com slash VOA Current Affairs. Well, here's a shout out to a loyal listener from Havana, Cuba, Juan Carlos Dominguez. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or better yet, like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Back to our discussion about the new Israeli government, very briefly, Natan Sachs, 
Comment on the role for Bibi Netanyahu now as the leader of the opposition. He's going to be leading a 30-member bloc of the Likud. How much of a spoiler do you think he will be? So Netanyahu now has a dilemma. On the one hand, in terms of his own preferences and certainly his livelihood, he'd be better off leaving the Knesset and going off on a speaking tour of the United States and probably make a lot of money. He's extremely popular in one side of American politics and very unpopular in the other. But in terms of political and perhaps his legal fate, he very much wants to stick around. As Lucy said, he now becomes leader of the opposition, and that would mean also that he remains very much a political factor. For him, the biggest danger is that the Likud, his own Likud party, will now try to replace him. Netanyahu's interest will be to have quick snap elections, primaries inside the Likud through the leadership so that no one has time to organize and he can remain leader. As long as he remains opposition leader, head of the Likud party, he will lead the largest faction in the Knesset and will lead an opposition to a government that is fractured on ideology and is also very slim. Uh, Nonetheless, curtailing its possibility to do many things will not be that hard. If I had to make a guess, I imagine he'd stick around in politics for quite a while, at least because he hopes to return to the office and try to get himself out of legal trouble, because we should remember he is on trial at the moment for corruption, including bribery. Exactly. Well, turning to you, Lucy Kurtzer, Ellen Bogan, I want to move forward now, looking at the timing of this coalition coming right on the heels of the Israel-Gaza war. And then we also saw that the war tore at the very seams of Arab-Jewish coexistence inside Israel proper with mob violence in cities with mixed populations. Very briefly, do you see anything changing going forward with this new coalition? Do they have the political will to address these ruptures So as you mentioned, there are a couple of things that happened and they were intertwined. This comes on the heels of the, unfortunately, we can say latest, because this seems to be a perennial eruption of violence between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, an 11-day war in May, thankfully and blessedly shorter than the last round of this that we saw in 2014, but incredibly destructive. And in the context of that fighting, as you point out, you saw violence between uh, Jewish and Arab citizens in Israel at a level Level that you haven't seen previously, to the point that actually the outgoing president of Israel, Reuven Rivlin, described it as a civil war. So this is a dynamic that this government is going to want to address. Again, as you've mentioned, there has been coexistence, but not smooth coexistence. So it's not as though this came out of the blue. There have been certainly tensions in those relations for many years due to many unaddressed issues. And I think some of what we already mentioned that Mansour Abbas is trying to address with some of the deals he extracted in joining this coalition, some of the socioeconomic factors that have driven some of those tensions. But I do think you can expect to see this coalition try to address that issue. It's less certain how this coalition will be able to robustly address the broader Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You've got really a spectrum of political views and ideology in this coalition in terms of how that conflict should be resolved. You have Naftali Bennett as prime minister, who is a affirmatively on the record of not supporting two states. Uh, You have Yair Lapid as foreign minister, who will be the face of engagement, most part with the U.S. and other key actors in this, who is a two-stater. And then you have further to the left of him, uh, Labour and certainly Merits, who are affirmatively supportive of two states. But these parties being able to find common cause on that issue in terms of how they go about addressing it just seems very unlikely. And as Netan mentioned, since you'll have Netanyahu in the opposition, 
in trying to find as many wedge issues to highlight as much as possible these fissures, you can imagine that this will be an issue as much as possible that this coalition is going to want to avoid. Now, of course, the question is, how much can this issue be avoided as what we saw just happen in May is that this issue does not allow itself to be ignored. It's going to be impossible not to address. And first and foremost, of course, there's matters of Gaza reconstruction in the wake of this recent round of fighting. So that is going to be there are going to have to be decisions made on that. Tensions are still simmering in Jerusalem with certain court cases still to be decided that themselves could raise tensions again. Nathan Sex, given this recent outbreak of violence, it looks like there's maybe no way to really avoid addressing the issue, notwithstanding the ideological divergences, the very pro-settler, anti-two-state solution, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and, of course, other members of the coalition. But how do you see this, particularly with respect to relations with the Biden administration? You're right, of course. The Palestinian issue, Israel can hope it remains dormant, but it's right there. It's very present. Palestinians are the immediate neighbors of Israelis uh, everywhere. And, of course, 21% of Israel are themselves Palestinian and citizens of Israel. And we saw just now the events not only between Hamas and Israel, but the prior events, especially in Jerusalem, we'll see a little bit of a sequel even this week with a planned march by the right wing in Jerusalem on Tuesday, so two days after this government is supposed to be sworn in. And we'll also soon see a ruling by the Supreme Court in Israel on the potential eviction of Palestinian families from homes in the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, which was really perhaps the initial instigator of what became the violence last month. All that is still in the cards, and the Israeli government will have to deal with these things. In a sense, that's true of the Biden administration as well. There actually is a commonality between the two administrations in the sense that the Biden administration truthfully wanted the Palestinian-Israeli issues to go to sleep for about four years because it has an enormous domestic agenda, what Biden is trying to do in the American economy and, of course, with COVID and the economic crisis. These are momentous generational things. And then in foreign policy, there is China, there is the Quad, there's democracy promotion. And even in the Middle East, there's the Iran nuclear issue that far supersedes the Israeli-Palestinian one in the agenda of the Biden administration. Both the Israelis and the Americans in that sense would hope that the issue remained dormant. They will probably not get what they wanted, and we already saw that last month. But there's a big difference between thinking that one has to manage this very actively, and I would hope preventing some of the worst aspects in Jerusalem and elsewhere, between that and pushing for a final status agreement on whether there's one state or two state or 15 states. Those are the kind of questions that would come in the context of a renewed peace process, as we used to call it. And I don't think any of them judge that there is real prospect of achieving any kind of solution to this conflict now. That is true, certainly, of Naftali Bennett, but it is also true of Yair Lapid. He supports a two-state solution in theory and probably in reality, but he does not think there's any chance of that happening now. So turning back to you, Lucy Kurtzer, Ellen Bogan, for the last word on all of these issues, even though, as you both alluded to, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict will not be solved anytime soon with this coalition, and yet we have to realize that in the aftermath of the latest conflict between Israel and Gaza, there's a renewed consciousness of the Palestinian plight, both in Gaza and in the West Bank and the uh, Arab Israelis within Israel. And so I don't think this coalition, even if it would like to, can really ignore that. Do you see any movement with the coalition and particularly with respect to the Biden administration? 
we've all noted, this conflict does refuse to be ignored. Another thing you said, which I think is very important, is the issue, to the extent it was out of people's minds, has forced itself back on the agenda, is back front and center on many people's consciousness. And so there will be no pretending it isn't there, much as I think Natan suggested many might wish it to be that way. And so I think one of the key things to keep in mind, on the one hand, we're saying this coalition is going to be somewhat paralyzed by doing anything dramatic on this issue, partly because they're so ideologically disparate. The flip side to that is they'll be paralyzed from doing anything dramatic in a direction that might not be constructive as well. So both ends of the spectrum, as you will, on this will be keeping each other's maximalist aspirations in check, which means that while Naftali Bennett has been on the record as fully supportive of annexation, it's going to be hard to see a scenario in which he can see that go forward and not collapse his current coalition, given the views of other parties who are part of that. I think that there is an interest across the coalition, certainly not seeing a return to the violence you saw within Israel between the Palestinian Arab citizens of the country and the Jewish citizens. I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests, Lucy Kurtzer, Ellen Bogan, director of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict Program at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and Nathan Sachs, director of the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America. America.